I think that applies to all of the different channels. If you, if you like wicked number data oriented and you love being an ads manager, there's going to be a level of success there beyond other things. If you love writing newsletters or if you're just wordy or something, the amount of passion you have for something is the differentiator that smaller businesses can have over the, the top, the bigger brands. So it's like, don't do everything. Like do stuff to know if you like it, if to know if it's sustainable because everything's going to be a grind, but it's going to feel less like a grind if you actually enjoy it. Welcome to Ad Creative, the new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for DDC founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Moseni. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm joined by Jess Bachman, co-founder of Fireteam, a creative agency for DDC brands. We talk about a lot of different things and he brings a few different spicy takes to the table. Some of my favorite things that we discuss are how the scientific method can really help you have a forensic analysis of what is working with your creative, how having passion for your work can actually be a forcing function to take your business to the next level, and how organic social is very difficult to get good at, and there's only a small percentage of brands that can actually make a meaningful difference into their business with it. There's a whole host of different things that we discuss that are incredible, and he teaches me a lot. I'm really excited for you to hear this one. Enjoy. Really excited to be back for another episode of Ad Creative with Jess Bachman. He is one of the co-founders of the Fire Team. I want Jess to actually just explain what they do, but... Um, if you don't follow him on Twitter, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Jess, thanks for thanks for joining us. Would you like to, I don't know, give a little background on what Fireteam does and, and yourself a little bit before we dive in? Yeah, sure. So Fireteam is currently a six-person agency, so pretty small. We're going to be two years old in September. Three of us met at a, a larger, more traditional creative agency doing stuff for like New Balance and Gatorade and yada, yada, yada. And this was when like Facebook ads were really catching on and everything was going digital. And I sort of ran the digital department and I could finally get some understanding of performance of ads beyond impressions or whatever. And that sort of was at odds with the creative mentality and the creative directors who were like much older because they didn't want to hear about like the first three seconds. They, they, they're in this like 30 second fixed commercial mindset where people are like sitting and they think people are ready to like consume their beautiful creative. And that, and that really wasn't the case. So we were kind of like butting heads a lot. And we sort of left because of that, because we were really performance oriented. And we wanted to, the tr traditional agency space, the performance there is awards. It's agency awards. And the, the Charlie Munger's quote is like, if you look at the incentives, you, you'll see the outcome. And the incentives there was not performance of the brands, it was awards. And they really made beautiful creative that was that was primed to go after the judges' attitudes and stuff like that. And that was not, that was not what I was into. And so we left to work with uh, smaller D2C brands uh, and on performance stuff. So you're telling me you don't want a cans lion? That's not what we're in it for? I, I can't believe that. There's one Cannes Lions that's for creative effectiveness. And I do try and look at that, mm. uh, that one each year. But everything else, like, you know, film craft, that whole industry is full of creatives that just can't accept that they work in like this capitalistic system. Yeah. They could have gone and directed movies, but they didn't. So now they're directing mini movies, but it's, uh, it's ridiculous. I think that's a, 
that's a thread to go after. What are the things that are most effective from the canned line? And do people actually agree with them? I think that's, uh, you just gave me an idea that I might steal and tag you in. I think that's a really great and interesting, interesting place to start kind of giving us a sense of where you got the idea to, um, to start fire team. What have you learned so far on the journey? I think it's, um, starting an agency. I, I know you've done something like, uh, freelancing and stuff on the side, but kind of going full on, on your own agency, having clients, there's two parts of this. There's the actual work and then there's the building a business on both sides. There are learnings and, you know, I think they, they kind of cross pollinate over time. What do you think has been harder, like the client side stuff, which you've been doing for years or the actual growing of a business with a team, et cetera, that delivers value to the clients? I think growing the agency and doing good work for the clients is a little bit at odds. I think there's a lot of conflict there because if if my goal was to create a large agency, I need to put in like SOPs standing operating procedures. I need to systematize things. I need to make sure everyone's do. There's not a lot of room for specialization to the client, uh, personalization and that type of stuff. And no shame to people that want to build large agencies, but that's not the route that we want to take. We kind of want to be the best, not the largest. And so that really requires you, every client is like 100% different and the processes are 100% different. And that that's hard to manage. Like that's not great on the margins either. A lot of times we over-resource clients and stuff like that. So um, I actually don't, we're not great at running an agency business. We do well, we have a lot of clients, but I wouldn't say like we, we've streamlined it to the point where we can scale and half of it's AI lead gen or whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, first of all, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. I think it's, um, most people like to flex and say that they're crushing and uh, you guys obviously have a lot of clients, but it, it is a real thing, right? To say, okay, we know we're good at this one thing, but what we need to do to grow the business meaningfully is at odds with what we know matters at the end of the day. Yeah. And there comes a point where like me personally, like I would like to, like we have six, we have six people now. I would like to get to maybe 12, but there comes a point where I am, I'll get removed from the real work, I think. Um, and I'm working on the business and not in the business. And I don't think that's ever going to be my goal necessarily. So, you know, it's hard to go into a business and, and put a ceiling on it. Yeah. I mean, I guess like you're saying working on the business versus in the business. And so this is like, when you talk to people, it's most of people's dreams, right? Like I don't want to work in the business anywhere. I just want to work on the business. And I think, like what you're saying counter to that is I want to work in the business. That's what kind of lights me up inside. Was there a point at which over the last two years, you realized that that's what actually mattered to you more than saying like, hey, look, you know, because the agency game is like, let's get as many people, brands as we can, grow as big as we can. And like, I, I don't know, you're probably the first agency founder I've met that has said that, which I think cuts counter to everything, which I love, by the way. Was there like a moment you realized that like, okay, we could do this and do it the way that everyone else is doing it and build something like massive? Because I know the stuff you guys do. It's super meaningful to brands. And it, it really does work. The, the creative that you guys are putting out there and the work that you guys are doing. Was there ever a moment you felt like, I don't know if that's who we are? And you said, I'm okay with that. I think part of it is I was a creative director before. I, I'm, I have a creative background. and so. I don't want to 
run ops or whatever, you know, for the business. So uh, there's that. And then the other part of it is that because I have a such passion for doing really great work, I don't want to degrade that. I, I don't want to, and it's hard because I do look at some really great larger agencies like Common Thread, and I love what Taylor's doing over there, but they they come up with these like cost caps all the time, you know, and there's a reason why they put these systems in. And, you know, I, I love systems as well, but like it works for, it, they need that for an agency of that size. I just feel like I don't like being put into any type of box whatsoever, uh, whether it's an SOP or a certain way of doing creative. So, you know, the more clients we have, the more we have to create the box and the structure to support the organization. Yeah, I think it's um, anytime you're in a you're in a service industry. So like we're in SaaS, right? So it is it is service based, but essentially you're trying to build like automation so that people can have like more efficient workflows, and so. You're working continuously on the product, you're working on the infrastructure, but then you'll sit back and things will happen overnight and you didn't have to do anything, right? You're just watching things happen. You can go look and you're like, okay, well, uh, this system didn't work. That did work. Oh, we got to man- like do these things manually. Is it something that we can build a system for, et cetera? What you're, I think what you're talking about is when you do that, you're taking the human element out. And when you're a service industry that is predicated on actual physical service being done, it really does, it can degrade the individual nature, right? So like, I always talk about this when people give me frameworks, it's like, yeah, do this framework. It's like, well, but that doesn't take into account the context that actually is meaningful for the business. And so you talked about that thing with, with uh, CTC, like you said, amazing, but like, maybe that doesn't work for every brand. So saying that essentially I'm a mouthpiece for this kind of strategy, but I'm also not taking into account that maybe this brand doesn't have the budget to spend that, that can do that. Maybe, you know, we hear a lot of people always throw broad audiences. I do the same thing, by the way, but maybe they're not big enough to actually have a meaningful spend on a broad audience and they need to go it, like inside out targeting where they go small and then get big as they scale. And so I think what you're talking about is really refreshing in terms of actually delivering value to the to the customers. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm going on my little rambling uh, spiel to say uh, high five. Um, I, I really love what you guys are like that, that kind of ethos that you're bringing into your clients. How has that impacted them in terms of both performance, but also kind of like your, I don't know, whatever your leading indicator for success is. Obviously, that's just retention, right? But like, I don't know how you measure that yourselves. Like, how do you feel that's impacted brands so far? Well, it's interesting because we work with a lot of different types of brands. Um, like we have some nine figure clients and we have some clients that we grew from literally three figures a month, you know, up to seven figures a month. One of the things that's real interesting and real challenging about the nine figure clients is that a lot of times they are like post performance where stuff doesn't matter, or there's like this layers and layers of management where people have, you're reporting to someone who doesn't get it or doesn't care or, and, and, you know, the, the fees are great. And, you know, we've had clients like prepay our minimums for 10 months and then it feels like they don't care at all. And, and so the challenging thing with that, particularly on a small agency is that losing clients like those is hard because they, they have very large fees and stuff. But the reason why you've lost them ha- has nothing to do with performance. Like, 
uh, maybe they got bought by private equity and then that guy has his own team to bring in or you know, there's all sorts of reasons like that. So initially we were like, yes, let's, you know, we love working with these huge clients. It's, we can put, these, put their name on our website and, and it feels good, but often the work, it's just, it's really hard to do meaningful work there unless you're like buddies with the CMO or something. But when there's layers of people in between it, it's very difficult and, and very risky. So we're trying to really cultivate a little bit. So we, we got into that situation and then we're like, let's find smaller clients. And then it's, it's also smaller clients are harder too. So it's, it's trying to find like the Goldilocks between a brand that you can talk to the founders with and you can grow with, but also get paid for. Yeah, I think there is like such a like a very distinct dissonance and pressure between between kind of those those big people who have innovation teams and someone comes to you on our side with an innovation team like oh we're fucked like the check is going to be nice but that's like guaranteed churn eventually because they'll either have never used the product or you know that person will have left or it will have moved to another team just because kind of the way that these things move in between organization in the organization is very like strange strangely bifurcated for how big and distributed the teams are and then like you said with the small teams they don't have meaningful budgets yet and they want to get there so they're doing the right thing by working with a person like you working with a product like like ours but also they don't have the meaningful budgets to, to make it work to be able to leverage what you guys are doing i'm sure you guys have seen there's like a minimum spend that you would recommend to people you say look i want to help you but you got to be willing to spend this and like every dollar when you start a business is, I don't want to, every dollar lost is pretty catastrophic psychologically. Like it actually isn't always that material to the business, but like psychologically, when you're watching dollars that you have no control of, right? You put it in the the system and the algorithm just spends it. I've seen it really mess with people. I've done it before myself. When you're spending it for someone else, you're like, oh, okay, thousand bucks, whatever. $10 of your own money goes out the window. You're like, oh, fuck, 10 bucks. I Like, what am I going to do? $100, oh my God, thousand. Um, so yeah, totally understand that. What has been during this process hard that you didn't expect? When it was just the three of us, it was very easy, you know, getting clients, growing, learning, making mistakes. It was very easy to take a loss because it's, you know, it's like, you know, Ali ramen, sure, fine, whatever. But like, now that we have like a, some employees, we, I, like I feel myself being less risky, or I just I'm just making decisions differently, and it, it's real hard when you're smaller, particularly because we're not just a, a media buying shop uh, or just email. Like we like to have our hand in a lot of different pots, so that kind of requires like bringing on a specialist. Like we have we brought in an organic social specialist, and we only do organic social for one client, and so it's like. It's really hard to manage, you know, have a bunch of, do a broad level of services, have employees when you're this small. And like, if we lost that client, you know, we'd have to let go of that person. Uh, it's not like we can just, you know, we have two organic social people or that's our, that's our main gig or we can float that or whatever. So it's been kind of hard to get so busy where you need to hire and then you hire and then, then you need to get more and it just fluctuates all the time. So that's been kind of challenging. So when you, for instance, say you, I, we hired this one, this uh, specialist for this one client 
Is that something we say like, well, now I'm just going to see if this is an option across multiple clients. You say like, okay, now we have this competency in house. Is it something we say like, well, we can expand services horizontally so that we can serve more of the market? Or do you say like, no, we just need to get someone in on something, make it sticky, and then they'll come to us when they need more stuff. We just need to let them know that it exists kind of within our, our stratosphere. Yeah. So I think with organic social, it's a little challenging because I don't think one person can run like four accounts well and do it to the level that we, we need it and want it to be. So, you know, maybe, maybe two accounts um, for sure. But like, and you know, this, this person, Nicole, she's amazing. Like she works with like influencers and, and for, for other clients, but like she runs the three channels on this one thing. And I almost wouldn't want to degrade that by putting more on her. Uh, media buying like does scale like a, a media buyer can handle you know more than one account for sure so it's different depending on the role but we we do believe in organic social and we didn't want to run with contractors and so we sort of bit the bullet and, and hired nicole so i think this is a really interesting one talking about creative and media buying um and brand is talking about the role of organic and i would love to kind of get your your pov on this you guys do such a great job on uh, on twitter I have seen this be super meaningful for Pencil as we have invested in organic and being really active, say, over the last three months and like what it's done to pipeline, what it's done kind of community building, et cetera. I think it gets a really bad rap today because of kind of there was like this middle, what do you call it, like middle period, if you will. And I think we're about to hit like a, a, an organic social renaissance just because like ad placements are so much more expensive. But if you remember like early days, everyone's like, oh, yeah, like you because all the algorithms gave you reach and then they throttled the reach for, say, the last five to seven years because they were trying to sell you placements. And now because of TikTok, essentially, like everyone has to make their algorithms serve organic content again and then layer in the ad placements on top of them because it's so competitive. So. I'm curious what you think about like we have to all up our game everywhere all the time. Like how does how does that work with organic? Because I think people don't think about it. Like brands don't I don't think meaningfully invest in how to have a community online anymore. Like it's not something I see being done. And so when someone does it, like we again, the obvious response or or call out is obvi kind of that we all talk about all the time. What have you seen be kind of a linchpin, even just in your guys' initial foray into this? Like, how can someone do it well? And how have you guys been able to leverage that? When I say I believe in organic, I'm going to sort of take a little bit of a contrarian take. I think one of the main issues with organic is the attribution. It's hard to know what works on a sales basis. And that that goes down to such a fundamental level that you can't build best practices. Like, with paid media, you know, like... This is what working this week, and this is what's working that week. And you know because you see the numbers. With organic, people are still running playbooks from five years ago, you know, seven years ago or whatever, because there's no data really to say otherwise. And so because of that, it's hard to get a, a, a level of talent in the organic space that is, like you can find a lot of good media buyers that are, that are average to good. For the organic side, we when people come to us for organic, we usually are like, you probably should not do this. Our take is that 90% of brands are not getting out what they're putting in. There might be like 5 to 8% of brands that 
are getting out what they're putting in. And then there's like 2% of brands that are absolutely crushing it and you know who they are and it's a huge pillar. And other brands look to that and be like, I want to do that. Well, it's like, you know, you want to be in the 2%, that's fine. But you you need to resource that and you need to get the absolute best people in there and the best strategy and all that type of stuff. So it's not like I'm going to hire an organic person, you know, just to run it. It's, it's, it's real challenge, real challenge. What have you seen be something that would give you a signal that they're ready to, because obviously resources, there's like, in my mind, there's kind of two to three types of resources. There's like the financial backing where you say like, Hey, go, go do what you got to do. There's kind of the, the team psychologically, like leadership team saying like, Hey, we're going to like organic is, is really important. And then there's like a meaningful strategy, right? So it's like, you know, team buy-in, financial buy-in from the team and then an actual strategy that feels like it works for the brand like uniquely because you can't just take something and transpose it one brand to the next like it that's that's the thing when i see someone say well we're just going to do their strategy it's like well dude that has that doesn't mean anything your brand is completely different like well we're in the same category your customer base is different how you message is different like you're going to have to retool all of this to be able to do that do you feel that you can get everyone on board with those kind of three pillars and whatever else you think you think it is or is like a sticking point getting people on board for kind of the amount of effort it's going to take because i think people just think they can go and and do stuff and it really does take like you said a huge amount i don't want to say like a, a monumental effort but it is something that to do it well you have to really invest so how do you see teams doing that and how often is that the case those three pillars apply to most of the platforms, except for TikTok, and I'll get to that in a second. But a big part of it that's beyond those pillars is, is the product even right for social? Is it shareable? You just can't take it. You can't, even, the best strategy for a product that's fundamentally not equipped for or getting social isn't going to work at all. So for example, like the the account that I love to follow on Instagram, and I know a lot of people feel like that's a dying platform or whatever, but is U2s. Have you ever heard of that brand? Yeah, I definitely have. Yeah, so they have the most engaged, the highest engagement rate on Instagram. And I, you know, we've looked at like so many other accounts and they consistently kill it. Like uh, I think they might have like a, a million followers or something, but like tens of thousands of likes per post, every single post. But because that product is built for social. And so if you selling a sponge and you're like, I want to be the next scrub daddy, scrub daddy, there's a lot of luck involved there to begin with a lot of luck involved in every, every success story at all. So, you know, factor that in, but like, you're not gonna, a sponge is not fundamentally shareable. So don't, don't expect like scrub daddy success or even, even approaching that unless you can really find a way to make your thing, um, shareable and successful. And if you can't, it's fine. It's truly fine not to invest in organic if it's not there. It can it can be a money sink. For most brands, it is. So I think it's fine to take the L and do the bare minimum there if it's if it feels like it's not going to work. Okay. So you just brought up something I think is um is important to note. So I'm going to preface this. When you see brands, let's just say on Twitter or when you're going and looking at TikTok videos or kind of like, how do you build your brand? Here's the thread, 17 steps. Essentially, what most people say is like, do fucking everything. And you're like, well, I don't have the resources to do that. Do paid, do organic, have a community, do SMS, do email. And every single brand is different. What I don't see people talking about is like, how do you, 
essentially synthesizes information when you have so many things going on, right? You're worrying about your PL, you're worrying about your suppliers, you're worrying about having to outsource to an agency. And so there's all of these things you're trying to do. What has been like your experience with say the best practitioners and or you just focusing on this, building your business to be able to say, okay, we're just going to focus on say these two things to start. How do people actually do that? Because I don't think there's enough information out there on how to make decisions. It's like, here's a here's everything rather than here are the ways that you choose the two things out of the 17 things that I put on the menu. Yeah, so a big part of it, particularly early on, is if you're a founder or solo operator and it's like all in your plate is like, do you like it? Do you like doing this? And this applies to organic social more than anything. If you can't stand posting once a day, twice a day, it's never going to work. So a lot of times when we go into... Um, bigger brands and we'll do like a boot camp. It's really about not let's less it's less about tactics and more like how can we how can we build a process where you love this and you will do it after hours because it needs to be done and you need to put in the 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 effort there. And I think that applies to all of the different channels. If you if you like wicked number data oriented and you love being an ads manager, there's going to be a level of success there beyond other things. Like if you're you know, if you love writing newsletters, or if you're just wordy or something that the amount of passion you have for something is the differentiator that smaller businesses can have over the the top, the bigger brand. So it's like, don't do everything like do stuff to know if you like it, if to know if it's sustainable, because if you everything's going to be a grind, but it's going to feel less like a grind if you actually enjoy it. I mean, we talk to it's such a such a salient point. We talk to brands all the time where the you know the founder will come and say, "Man, I make ads, but it's a grind." Like, join us. That's the whole point of this this entire this entire thing is it doesn't have to be a grind anymore. But I think it's important to note, kind of across, like the business building stack, if you will, you can't do everything, and you're going to have to outsource some things. What things will you be able to be exceptional at? And just lean into those things because you can drive like really unique value for the business. Because first, you know more about the business than anybody else. Second, you're passionate about it. So you're going to dive deeper and give so much more value. And you're going to be willing to study more about what's going on so that you can craft better stuff. I mean, I can just speak to that on our on our side. You can see each of us like on the, the the team who like who's passionate about what and when they dive into it, what happens? Like you can see, like you can literally see meaningful lift. Obviously, the bigger you get, the harder it is to see kind of these incremental bumps based on certain people doing things. But when you're at a early stage, it really does. You can really see meaningful, yeah, meaningful changes there. Yeah, and you know, working with small founders, like we we need to keep them engaged and keep them happy and motivated. Um, for example, like we took on a brand, they're in the T space, like we made a bunch of ads, we put them in the market, and then they started making uh, organic TikTok. And those did really well. And we took those and put it in ads. And it's like, now it's like their stuff performs better than our stuff, which is hard for us as a creative agency to digest. But we understand that they they have a knack for it. There's a, there's a natural talent that these two founders have at, at producing and making content and shooting stuff. And so we are now like feeding them scripts and they're shooting and then we're coming back and, and doing the edits. So wherever you feel that that joy for something, that's 
a route to success, whether whether there's a Twitter thread about it or whether you know the right thing to do there. If you follow that joy, people see that. People feel that, you know, particularly if you're on camera as well. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. So obviously you're in the uh, the Triple Whale community talking about creative. Um, I love all of your your breakdowns. What do you feel like? So like we can actually get into some some data and some fun, controversial things here. What do you feel like is is working right now that uh, that no one is still investing in? One of the things that I think is working right now is trying to make the absolute best piece of creative that you can. Very intentional. Everything matters. The details matter. And this is something that we do and, and we our, our ads are pretty long. It's rare that we'll do an ad that's less than a minute long. And we feel that fundamentally, every piece of creative has a level of scale that you can get out of it that's encoded before you even put it on the platform. And then when people are like, oh, my creative dies so quickly, and I look at it, I'm like, yeah, no kidding, it's like 15 seconds and based off like a TikTok sound from two months ago, and it's there's nothing to it. And so it feels like if you can make all the right decisions, you know, psychological decisions, editing decisions, music, sound, the right testimonial, the right UGC that just feels so natural. Uh, and you put that into an ad and then you just, you know, the media buyer's job is to, is to exhume that level of scale from the creative. But absolutely, we, when people are like, our ads die all the time, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't share that experience. Like we're still running ads from January uh, for most of our clients. So it just feels like there's this drive to... Uh, split test a million things or, or DCT, a ton of variations, and just offload the decision making to a machine necessarily. First of all, I love the idea, not the idea, the essentially framework you guys have found, which is like intentionality pre-delivery into the algorithm allows you to find a certain amount of scale. And so it's, so then I guess the the question is, do you find that say like, I'll come and tell you counter thinking, hey, you need to test 10 ads to find one that scales. You're going to say, hey, you actually need to just make one to two really highly thought out ads. And both of those things will get enough distribution to find scale. And you can iterate based on kind of the components that you have there. Because the one thing that I find upstream a lot of clients struggle with is the amount of investment it takes in creating meaningful assets to then say, okay, well, we're going to make only a few ads off of these. And so how do you, I guess, you're helping clients create stuff, your, you, your team is helping shoot stuff. What's your pitch to them in terms of how you're going to give them variety over time? So let's just say every you know, two weeks, you want to do a refresh or every week, they're not going to have not I don't think every client has an appetite to do a shoot every month, they want to do something every say, quarter or wh whatever, what's kind of the the thinking there? Yeah, the clients have more appetite to get more creative in the worse it does. When, when stuff is hitting, they're not coming to you being like, what else are you doing? What, you know, how else are you getting stuff in there? Um, generally, what we do is like when we start with a client, we'll do like this larger sort of strategy session interviews, a bunch of stuff, and we'll create maybe like 10 pitches. So it will result in maybe like 10 ad units. And then we'll create those, put those in the market. Um, we certainly iterate based off what works and, and what doesn't. But I think creatives need to give credit to their own experience. 
Um, and so one of the things that really bugs me about the, the testing framework is that you test a bunch of different ads. You test the background color on a bunch of different ads. One's red, and one's blue, and one's orange. And it's like the blue one works. You, you find that out. Okay, there's, there's a whole other layer. Like, why does blue work? Like, if you, get, if you get down to that layer, you can then take that learning into the future and, and you know, create more blue ads or whatever. But software is set up to skip that step. A perfect example is Klaviyo. Do you use Klaviyo a lot? I have. We don't, we don't do that much. We should, though. Okay, so Klaviyo is, Klaviyo is a feature where you can just split test uh, headlines. You write two headlines, and it'll send to 10% of the list. Whichever headline works, uh, it sends to the rest of the 90% of the list which is great. But what people don't do is they don't go back and understand why did this headline work? They just, it's just like this weird performance hack. So the next time they write an email, what's your learning? You're just starting from scratch all over again about what headline works or not. And so there's reasons, there's psychological reasons, there's emotional reasons why all these things, why the tests win, why your creative wins. So if you can go back to first principles and understand that, you can almost leapfrog a lot of the the lower level testing and put in stuff that you know that you have reasonable confidence that it's going to be effective and then from that test see if that works and then you know so one of the things that we do we use notion a lot we do a lot of tests you know split test emails sms ads we have a experiments database where we really try and be scientific method about it and it's like we're doing this test for, this is my hypothesis. You put in a hypothesis and then you go back and then you, you look at the result. And then we have a column that's like, how much, how confident are we in the results? Sometimes it's, sometimes it's like, feels like it's in the margin of error. Sometimes it like blows it out of the water or whatever. Sometimes there's not enough data, not enough spend. And then like, what is the learning from that? And that database is like one of the most valuable things in our organization because the scientific method is how we went from, thinking that you could treat illnesses by bloodletting to, you know, artificial hearts. You build on the knowledge. And I feel like a lot of the tools out there are skipping the knowledge building part and just doing the performance from testing aspect. Yeah. So uh, we should talk about this a little bit, kind of how we, how we look at things. First call out, thank you for mentioning first principles. I have a tweet going out about how creative and first principles should be like best friends and everyone should be thinking that way in terms of their analysis um, when they're thinking about creative. If they're not using algorithmic tools like like Pencil to do those first principle thinking for you, you should be thinking about it. You should do it anyway. In terms of coming to that, so I have a, a very fun question. Dan and I from Marpipe talked about this. Do you think creative is art, more art or more science? Creative is behavioral science. So more science. I think the data part is tricky because I, I, I have a data background. I used to be the creative director at a data analytics uh, startup for four years. I came to, came to like doing a lot of stuff with infographics. I sort of built the infographic industry. So I'm very much data um, aligned. And so I know how people can fundamentally abuse it, not understand it. Statistics should be taught in like sixth grade. And so you empower people with data, but they're not equipped to... They don't know it. They don't, there's just so many, the amount of decimal points in something is not an indicator of accuracy. 
if you put three things, you know, you test seven things and you put three in the market and, and like two works and, and you have like a 0.217777, like that doesn't mean accuracy at all. And it, people get the illusion that data equals some level of accuracy, but it's actually kind of the opposite in a lot of cases. I think people veil a lot of true knowledge. So I, I always talk about this a lot that in our industry specifically, qualitative feedback and understanding of what's going on has become a bit of a lost art. So I'm, I'm really happy that you know, people like you and Sarah are pushing, pushing on this a lot more because essentially we all got addicted to data platforms over the last, say, eight to seven to eight years where it's like, oh, I can look at this and then I just do th move this dial and I do this one thing and the data moves up and it hits, hits my revenue number without kind of understanding. And for people listening to the show again, I'm sorry, this is like, I say this all the time, but there are like people behind every data point and there's behavior going on behind it. And so you can find ways to synthesize it. So you say like, okay, this is what 80% of people are doing. I need to serve this first. But like, let's, let's back up and say, okay, the science of this is understanding people, right? It's not understanding how do I make my, my graph go up and to the right. It's understanding how do people interact with this product and this creative. And if I get it right, then it will move up and to the right. But the understanding is to pull the data so that you can then go and figure out how people are interacting so that then you can make something meaningful. And that's the behavioral science. So I think that's a really, really strong, that's not even a take. It's just like a, like a very strong principle to, to go off of. How many people have asked you for that experiment tracker? Because I feel like that's like such a powerful engine to be able to, to hold it like proprietary within the agency. People don't ask me for it because that, I, we don't put it out there that we have it. Yeah. And even if we did, even if people, like, there's no point in me giving it to other people because it's it's specific to our clients and, you know, the, the way we operate. But, you know, people are looking for shortcuts and the shortcut is is having a great method. Uh, you can't you, you can't shortcut your way to the, the outcome of having a great method. It, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I think that's, uh, it's really important. By the way, every single person wants something to be easier like that. There's not a single person in the world, no matter who they are, Jeff Bezos down to, I don't know, my two-year-old trying to figure out how to put like Legos together, who doesn't want things to be, to be simpler. But the idea is you've just got to do the work and then build frameworks over time that essentially allow you to grease the tracks and move. I don't want to say faster because it's more, I think, smoother through the process because things just naturally will always take time but can you make it so that it's less friction within the kind of movement so that it feels easier and maybe you know marginal uh less amounts of time um and then you know outsource etc what do you think people have been overhyping recently that that feels like it's not something that should be should be being used either tactically or kind of they're i don't know putting out there just as um just as kind of thoughts so Anytime someone is uh, dogmatic about something, massive red flag for me. That's that's not the way anything works. Like there's not a single thing where where dogma like excels or there are, isn't edge cases or it's or the entire space is made of edge cases. You know, so a lot of times I hear people be like uh, hyping DCT uh, or like we'll we'll audit accounts and it's just like it's just like a massive it's just like a DCT. There's a ton of spend behind it. And then they'll be like, you know, well, we take the best performer out of that DCT and put that into something else. And that is the best performer. In general, 
people have different ways of working and everyone can, can do their own thing. But we really feel that DCT and AI t- tools in general, they raise the floor of creative, but not the ceiling. And there's, the people need that. People need both of those, absolutely. You know, if you can't, if you can't write well, use an AI tool, Jasper, whatever, and you will raise the floor. And, you know, that might be good for your business, but our agency, we're constantly trying to, to raise the ceiling and constantly trying to do the, like, push the limits of what's possible. And that's not for everyone either. So it's not that I'm against those tools. I just need to, I wish people would understand that that's not the only way to get stellar results, you know? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an important point. I mean, just on our side, we very rarely see pencil being the only way people are creating ads. What they do do is they layer it in to, like you said, raise the floor. And by the way, when you have a lot of ads, you learn a lot faster, right? Like this is kind of you, you increase the, um, you increase the clip at which you're able to, or the velocity at which you're able to pull in learnings and insights, et cetera. Okay. Learnings. If you're going back and getting learnings, you get yes data and stuff, but like you could be skipping the learning phase for sure. Well, so I think this, I, again, this comes back to like everything, doing everything well is predicated on rigor always. And so I think a lot of people skip this step. And so conventional thinking is I start a store, I run some Facebook ads, I'm going to make some sales, I'm going to be in Dubai next week. Uh, and that's, that's just not how this whole thing works. You run some tests, they flop, you look at what has worked and what hasn't, you pull those insights, iterate again, run another test, iterate again, run another test. And maybe four tests later, you get one thing that doesn't lose you money. And you're like, Oh, fuck, this is great. Now let's dive deep into this and figure it out. And you go. And essentially, it's like, okay, now these none of these are losing me money. How do I make profit? All right. And it like, continuous flow there. And then maybe in 10 years, you're in Dubai. And so I think this is kind of and again, tell me if I'm like overstepping here, but this is the thing I find missing in most people's flow. And the best people do this, right? They're very, very rigorous, but it is not put out there how much time you need to spend analyzing your data and then synthesizing it with your qualitative feedback, whether that's reviews or talking to customers or what you get responses on emails or like going and looking at support tickets. Like this is kind of, by the way, cheat code for people trying to figure out what's going on in their business and how to make their ads better to service them. Go look at your support tickets, right? Like this will tell you a lot about what is actually happening in the business because, you know, reviews are, are, a, are a lag measure, right? It's the same thing. Like NPS is a long, like it's down the line, but like support tickets are what's going on today right now in your, in kind of your flow. So have you, do you, even when you talk to people, like, do you have to push them to be more rigorous about the way that they're looking at things or does that come naturally to them? I think people can be over rigorous on the data side because that stuff fits into spreadsheets and stuff and less people, they allow the data to make decisions that they intrinsically know as simply being a human being. Um, like in, in the triple whale channel, um, I do a lot of uh, ad account creative reviews. Have you seen those? Yep. So I, I, I pick I pick videos apart every every single detail, and and the way I do it is I I'll watch a video and then I'll be and I I'm really in tune to how it makes me feel second to second, 
And so if I, I'm watching it and it's like, there'll be a cut and I feel something, something was off and I'll, I'll get that little spidey sense that something was off. I don't know what it is. I have to go back into a look at it. And then when I, when I analyze it, I'm like, oh, it's off because the VO is talking about this one thing, but they're actually showing something else. So there's a little bit of dissonance going on in my head here. And it feels like if you're, if you're in touch with your feelings as a human, you can suss that out. You can figure that out. But that's going to be real hard if you test a bunch of clips and, and the data come back and it's like, this one worked and this one didn't. First of all, it costs money to run that test uh, to begin with. And you might have already gotten to the result by feeling it and, and figuring out what's going on before, beforehand. So then if you're saying, because I think this is also another another one is like, how do we help people save money so that they don't have to go, especially early stage companies, but any company really, and and they want to run these tests. How do you pre-mortem? Because like everything we're talking about is a lot of post-mortem. Do you say like, hey, here are my five competitors. I'm going to go look at their ads and just see like second to second. I'm going to do one of these like case studies for myself so I can say, okay, I mapped five different competitors, you know, five ads that have been on an ad library, say for minimum two months. So you know that there's some meaningful spend behind them because they've left them on, um, or there's meaningful conversions behind them. Would that be kind of your recommendation? Or how do you break that down when you're building for another brand? Yeah, so this is challenging to have other people do because I'm able to pre-mortem because I came from an agency that spent half a million dollars on an ad and everything, every detail was like scrutinized uh, like you wouldn't believe. So I learned that rigor there and I learned what to watch for. I'm just going to, I'm going to briefly move into like a little bit of a, a pitching mode where uh, September, and this isn't public yet, but we're launching Fire School where we are going to teach people how to how to do this, what to look for, and how to pre-mortem their ads. And just, I don't want to use the word course because that's like a pejorative word. And, you know, I've bought like $1,000 courses and I only watched the first two videos and got bored out of my mind. And so we really want to do a school that educates people all the way down the first principles, you know, what they are, and then all the way up to individual video editing things. And once you understand the, the first principles, the, the editing tricks and all that stuff is based off stuff that you sort of previously learned in the school. So um, hopefully we can teach a lot of people how, how to do this and sort of change the conversation a little bit. I love that. I'm going to go. Uh, we should, we'll definitely, um, once you have the link for that, put that in the, the show notes um, and plug that in our newsletter because people, everyone should learn from you guys. So totally buy that. I think it's super important. And anyone who hasn't even gone and looked at what first principles are, just put it in your YouTube. Uh, Elon Musk will give you a pretty good breakdown on like, I think he was on 2020 or something. Um, and he, he did a nice little one. So Jess, I usually we, we pivot over to something I call anti rapid fire. Um, I'm sure you have noticed I'm very long winded. So the questions I ask usually get a long winded answer on this portion. Where do you get your best ideas from? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I truly am an, an ideator. I love coming up with stuff. I'm, I, I can absolutely hop on a, a random call and just start brainstorming and do that, all the type of stuff. So I don't have a notebook. Um, a lot of creatives have like a notebook or they write down ideas. I don't. A lot of times I feel like 
if something if I if I don't write it down and it comes back to me, it's probably worth investigating a little bit more. But a lot of times I will read read and look at a a broad range of material like you know biology textbooks or other or like get out of the business book for a little bit and like go read some fiction to to really increase your your creativity um, and really trying to expand the scope of the things that are in in your head it doesn't have to be niche specific but uh, if you have a lot of just random stuff going into your head and then when you look to apply that to a niche, you're going to be able to draw from different things that will allow you to stand out. Because if, if it's all niche specific, you're going to be doing the same thing that someone else is doing. You know, you're not, you're not going to really stand out. So I try and, you know, just a lot of different types of media, a lot of different types of things going on. So you're a cross trainer. So if you were training for, you know, the next NFL season, you'd be doing ballet or something like that. That's, uh, that's, that's what we're saying here. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I love that. I love that. What's been the best piece of advice you've ever received? So this is interesting. My dad always said that half the people that you meet have below average intelligence. And normally I'm like, well, yeah, of course you live in like Louisiana, dad. You know, there's probably something going on there. But he actually, you know, he taught at the highest level of academia. He was like the head of the graduate English department at a university. And it's really something that I've found that in every room, you know, the people you look at, like... We'll be in a room with, you know, at the previous agency, we're in a room at like PepsiCo with people who are like the biggest brained people. And there's still half of them are just dumb. They don't get it. And so I really feel like be very careful about looking at people above you like they're better than you. They may be above you, but there's like maybe they were luckier. And as soon as you start talking to them, you're like, you know, you're not even like that good. How did you even get here? And that that has allowed me because starting something, running a business, doing agencies, there's a lot of imposter syndrome going on, particularly looking at bigger agencies and stuff like that. And I can tell you that like, even particularly when you look at the biggest and best brands, those brands are so large that they allow, there's, there's so many places for really dumb people to hide and do work there. And so just always be aware that the people above you are not the smartest in the room and that you might actually be smarter than them. And you probably are if you kind of know what you're talking about. So uh, I guess lean into that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure I'm going to get off this call and you're going to go tell your team like, oh man, that guy, not, not the smartest guy I've ever chatted with. I think it's, a, it's really important to, pretty important to recognize. What skill do you think has served you best in life? So I'll, I'll use a, an anti-skill, I guess. So I have a, an inability to form habits. I cannot form any, I can't, can't do something for 30 days, you know? So I don't get locked into a path, I guess, or, or a particular way of learning. And because of that, I like trying a lot of different things. Like I, I took up bagpipe lessons just to, and I don't even play an instrument. You know, I took up bagpipe lessons just to, just to do that. And you learn something totally new and you can almost feel the neuroplasticity in your brain and the channels forming and that type of stuff and as soon as i learned how to play like amazing grace um i was done i was like i'm done with that and now i'm moving on to the next thing which again is totally new and so i don't um it's a little bit of like uh, like a non-specialist i mean i feel like there's certain things that i do know well but i just i just have this ability to go from thing to thing and you know not feel bad about it either um, and I feel like that has allowed me to be 
extra, just increase my awareness of things and, and allowing me to be extra creative in a lot of situations. We got to get you on the Huber, you know, the Huberman Lab Pod just to talk about uh, talk about neuroplasticity and and like forming non like the opposite of forming habits and what it does. I think that's a really interesting kind of like counterintuitive way of uh, way of doing things. I'm going to test that out. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's good though. I think and then the last one is um, you obviously started this agency after coming from a you know big agency background and having worked in, in multiple different orgs. What would you tell yourself, say, two, three years ago when you were thinking about this, just from this journey that you've been on um, during the last couple of years that you didn't know to maybe help yourself? The top of Maslow's pyramid is um, self-actualization. And I think if you want to get there, you need to be hypersensitive to blockers of that in whatever organization you're at. Um, Like in the last agency like I'm, I'm a creator at heart. I always need to be producing, doing something, being a change agent, uh, coming up with new stuff. But as soon as I was like, you know, people like I come up with something and it'd make people uncomfortable and they say no or something, or, or I'd have to push through. And that happened over and over and over again for like a few years. And it was, I was net, I should have understand earlier that I was never going to be able to like truly self-actualize there. And I needed to uh, break free from that. So I think you can self-actualize in an organization if they give you space and and room and latitude and runway. But if you see that that is not happening or there's someone above you that is uh, a blocker to that, either move to a different department or find a way where there's a a direct channel to allow yourself to self-actualize. Yeah, that's epic. I can fully resonate with that. I think when when you're younger you don't have a good barometer for something like that or a good weather vane for those things. And so you say like, I'm going to grind through it. I think there, there obviously is space for learning that not everything is meant to be fun all the time, but there is also the, Hey, there are diminishing returns on this grind. And a lot of it can degrade your ability to self-actualize earlier or more as you go down the line, because you kind of get like, you know, essentially they put out your light, if you will, not to get too like esoteric, but I think it's really, really important to remember that is like, there is a dissonance between the grind and the light that you need in yourself to kind of continuously self-actualize and live a meaningful life. You can't even know how to self-actualize or what that path is. If you don't, if you aren't reflective on, on who you are, Socrates was like, know thyself or whatever. And so I, people rarely look introspectively about uh, who they are, why they think about why, why are you gravitated to a certain thing? Like, wh- like what, is, what is your own first principles? And if you, if you can go to those and figure out what those are, it's going to just allow you, it's just going to be like a red giant sign pointing to where you need to go to self-actualize. But if you kind of don't, and your and your and your first principles are like Gary V's first principles or someone else's first principles. You're not going to find your path. You're going to try and go down someone else's, and you know it's going to be a dead end. That's an amazing place to uh, to end here, Jess. Where should people interact with you and your team? Um, we'll obviously put it in the show notes, but like, should it be on Twitter on the uh, the Fire Team Twitter, or you know, should we? Uh, where should they go to uh, to meet with you guys? Yeah. So if you want to know more about Fireteam, um, our website is fireteam.is. Everyone loves it. 
everyone, we get emails constantly that's like, your website is amazing. It resonated with me 100%. Just trying to be different out there. But certainly on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. Like, if you want to interact with me personally, uh, I'm there every day, all day. Uh, unfortunately, I, I'm like the social media manager for our agency. So <laughs> is what it is. No, that's great. That's great. Yeah, everyone um, go spend time, get in that triple whale channel with Jess. He drops knowledge on a weekly basis. Go check out their website. Like I said, resonated and is like epic. I'm using that word a little too much now. It's become my buzzword of the last few minutes. It's a game changer. It is a game changer. Yes, yes, it is. Um, it is. I was using this word earlier. So I'm just like, how do I even bring this thing? I was, I said, I told my son to say he was a Leviathan and uh, I don't know how to bring that into this conversation, but interact with Jess. They're amazing. Fire team is doing incredible stuff. Can I just give you a quick anecdote about agency websites? Cause it's one of, it's one of my passions. Yeah. Oh, please, please do. Let's, let's do it. I love it. At the previous agency, um, they didn't really update their website a lot. And I always wanted to make it like super awesome and, and super fun. And they were like, you don't get clients from your website. And they were, you know, they got clients by someone is, someone is on the board of whatever. And it's just like all this like networking and stuff. And I internalized that. I was like, oh man, I don't know. You know, you don't get clients from your website. Like how are we going to get clients when we start fire team and break off? But man, we get so many leads from our website. Like people who say they don't get leads from their website are people that don't get leads from their website. They, they don't know the power of that. And so they, that, that forms their sort of framework and their, and their worldview. And absolutely, like agencies put so much effort into your website. It, it makes a huge difference. Well, I think this kind of comes back to, I saw a, a tweet and I know we're, we're going over, but I saw a tweet from Elon a few, a few weeks ago. And it was like, don't try to build loops, build neural tree maps. And it's really interesting because, you know, we're all like trying to build loops and repeatability, but like a neural tree map is like, okay, well, if someone sees me on Twitter, then they go to my website, then they go to my sales page, and then they want to interact with my newsletter. And then they, and yeah, that's a loop, but essentially you're essentially just making routes for people to kind of move across the internet and engage with your company so that whenever they're ready, you're top of mind. And if at any point there's breakage in that, like the neural map breaks. And so, yeah, maybe they get to your newsletter and they say, oh, okay, this is great. But if the stuff that leads them out doesn't feel like it's quality, like the gambit is kind of fucked. So I think absolutely like people need to invest in their websites the same way a brand would do it. An agency should do it because an agency is a brand, right? Yep. So I think you're, you're, you're totally onto it. Don't be afraid to stand out. Like I, I use uh, this analogy of like, do you know how much raised concrete it takes in the sidewalk to cause you to trip over something? It's like a centimeter. You know, it doesn't take much because sidewalks are so uniform. And particularly in B2B, like websites are so uniform. Every agency is the same. Every SaaS company is the same. And it really does not take much to stand out. And then so just like raise that concrete up a little bit and people are going to stop, trip and take notice and be like, what was that? It's different. So a real opportunity in the business to business space. Well, that is a great, great place to to end it. Thank you for sharing everything. I'm I'm certain everyone is gonna love this one and get the like they're very lucky to get the opportunity to learn from you. Thank you for taking the time to uh, to join us on this on this episode. And I, I learned a lot, so I appreciate you. Yeah, and likewise, and you like I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I really do appreciate um, how yours has a different energy to it. 
you know, from the conversations that you're asking. Um, and that matters as well. So thank you. Oh, thank you, man. I really appreciate that. That kind of feedback uh, makes all the uh, all the fun effort worth it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. All right, let's do it again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, just hit me up on Twitter. Also a small favor, if you could please share and review this, we want our guests' amazing insights to reach as much of the community as possible. And your ratings help. Till next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks.